Hey everyone, on this episode we're going to be discussing Mad Max Fury Road, which released in 2015. We do recommend you watch the movie before listening, it will probably make the discussion much more interesting. So John, what is Mad Max Fury Road about? Well Mike, from the writer-director of Happy Feet and the producer of Babe and Babe 2 Pig in the City comes the next heartwarming family adventure that's sure to put a smile on anyone's face. George Miller directs Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy on a wild road trip movie that involves just a few kidnapping antics and some crazy chase scenes that will have the whole theater cheering. Watch as our beloved characters bond over escalating hijinks before, spoiler, learning that all along the right thing to do was just turn around and make their way back home. Don't miss out on this all ages classic movie. So I was planning just to shout witness me after your uh, intro. Okay. But one of my straight thoughts was definitely that Miller made Happy Feet and Babe. So I'm a little mad that <laughs> you spoiled that right? one. Yeah. Can you imagine? I'm sorry. I'm sorry I stole your thunder a little bit. <laughs> Why is Babe um, not in this movie? Witness me. True or false, it'd be better with Babe as one of the main characters. True. Uh, welcome to this film could be your life. You know, I also have the note, Mike, do you think at some point we need to put a warning on some of these joke intros that they are demonstrably false? <laughs> no. Way better. Welcome once again to This Film Could Be Your Life, a movie podcast where two friends take the movies that they love way too seriously. My name is Jonathan Devine. I'm joined as always by Mike Overstreet. Witness me twice! I'm glad you got it in, frankly. <laughs> I needed I, another I, I one. I did feel like I had deprived you. <laughs> like we have said, this this episode we're discussing Mad Max Fury Road, which came out uh, seven years ago. Mm. Man, Mike, we're yeah, dying. That, don't you hate that? Death, death um, it's an Australian-American death comes for us all. It's an Australian-American action adventure film directed by George Miller, written by George Miller, Brendan McCarthy, and Nico Lathorius. The cinematography was by John Seal. It was edited by Margaret Sixel, and the music was by Junkie XL. I also want to give a special shout out to the stunt coordinator, mm. who is Guy Norris. He uh, the real, he's the real. He's the real MVP. He's kind of the real MVP, which we're yeah. gonna we're gonna get into. Also uh, was the second unit director on this movie and Happy Feet, which is just incredible. Same stunts. Um, same level of execution. Same, stunts. same level of stunts. <laughs> um, Mad Max Fury Road is a sequel, question mark? Revisiting, question mark? I think revisiting is the word Miller used. Mm. Of the Mad Max character and world, which had previously featured in three seminal 80s action movies. Mad Max, Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, which is commonly or often cited as like one of the greatest action movies ever made and Mad Max Thunderdome, which is a little bit weaker. Babyhead. Uh, all of, me. Yeah. All of those films featured Mel Gibson in the title role, but Fury Road enlists Tom Hardy opposite the new character Imperator Furiosa, who's depicted by Charlize Theron. Um, Mike, rather than try to summarize this movie, because it's, it's a weird movie to summarize because arguably it's just a two hour chase scene. If you guys, I'm going to come in with a, yeah, uh, I was just gonna say if you guys have ever dove into the Warhammer 40k lore, it's just orcs 
the orcs made into a movie that is this I, I I'm only with only my tangential knowledge of 40k that does seem like it an tracks. accurate tell Trust like, me, here's, it tracks. I was gonna give you I was gonna give you my hot takes so that's okay. your take I, I'm, I'm a fan of that here's my take this is what would have happened if the 80s action movies hadn't been supplanted by Die Hard in 90s action mm. but instead continued to evolve keeping and building on the genre's ridiculousness but eventually filtering it through like more sophisticated storytelling I yeah. think that's what you get. This is almost like an alternate history well, where 80s movie, 80s action just never stopped. And, and I it think just kept it, getting better. I think it's also would require the 80s cocaine craze to never end. So that too. Yeah. Gotta throw that he, in also. I, I, I kind of thought that was just like Assumed. You know, sure. part and parcel with, yeah. If, if the 80s action movies are continuing, then obviously the cocaine is continuing. I did write, alternatively, I'm an elitist snob and 80s action movies had plenty of sophistication to their storytelling. Sure. So, uh, you know, I'll accept either one. Yeah. All fair. the same, uh, we start out by talking about our history with this movie. Uh, Mike, what would you? What, why don't you take it? What, what? I feel like we both saw this in theaters, probably, right? Yeah. We actually knew each other when this came out. Mm-hmm. Did we see it together? I don't know. I don't I think so. Don't remember you being I there. I don't remember that. But yeah. you might have been. I don't know. I don't remember our experiences often. So. Um, cool. Good times. Yeah. This movie came out in 2015, which was a a big year, big year, not for any particular reason, but um, I was in seminary at the time. So I was doing grad school and it was just perfect timing because I, I remember going to the theaters and just wanting like in a matinee showing to get out of my head for a few hours. And this movie <laughs> it does that. Um, it, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I'm not I, I have never been a huge Mad Max head. Like I like those movies, but um they weren't really part of my childhood, so I, I don't have like a nostalgia with them. But this movie yeah. looked dope on the trailer, and despite my skepticism about you know sequels that come out decades after the last movie in the franchise, I I went and saw it. It was in fact dope, and I remember that it remains still one of my top five favorite movie theater experiences of all time because the theater was a blast. Um, like all twenty yeah. of us in the theater for that were just dead and dying and loving life you know valhalla mick feasting in valhalla beautiful so to clarify did you had you already heard the because this movie had extremely positive word of mouth and critical yeah yeah to it i was a rotten tomatoes head probably at the time so i was like oh 90 percent um, I'm, I'm excited about that. So, I, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to front. I'm still kind of a Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, Rotten yeah. Tomatoes only tells me if I'm, when something exceed, well, may exceed or uh, uh, disappoint my expectations, you know? Sure. Like, it, it's just a quick kind of gauge of like, oh, okay, this may end up being way worse than I thought it was going to be, or this may end up being way better than I thought it was going to be. Sure. And I think that was Fury Road for me. I have a weirdly similar experience. I introduced Mad Max, the original trilogy, as a seminal 80s action tri- like series, which it was, uh, but weirdly it never connected with me. I think I saw it too far after the fact. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I say it, I'm referring specifically Mad Max 2, Road Warrior, is often, like, often, often cited as, like, this perfect action movie. And I'm sure it is extremely good, but that movie, along with... Uh, Kurt Russell, Escape from New York. Both of those movies that people go crazy about, I didn't see until probably the last like six years. And in both cases, or I guess 
seven or eight years. And in both cases, I was a little bit like, okay, this feels extremely dated. Like, there's yeah. things I like about yeah. this, but yeah. uh, it was a little tough. Both very slow in times. Very slow in 100%. times. 100%. Um, Wildly different movie more, from Fury Road. <laughs> yes. yes. While, yeah, if you've seen Fury Road and think like, oh, well, now I should go back. Like, maybe you should, because again, there's probably merit to those movies. But just know they are not the same vibe at all. Um, not anywhere near the same intensity, especially. Uh but yeah, I think I was kind of, I, don't, I think I was probably not expecting on the face of it for this to be an interesting or exciting movie. And if I, if I remember correctly, I had like, and, and it may even have been you, I had like friends who were like, you have to see this. Yeah. This is yeah. like a transcendent action movie. And I, I think I even had some at that time, I, I had already had some people online I followed all of him said some form of like, this is possibly the greatest action movie ever made. Yeah. And you have to go see it. Yep. Uh, and it was, it, it totally blew me out of the water. It is funny because I, I, there's a recurring theme. I've noticed on this podcast where I say that a movie was so visceral, I struggled to return to it. And this is on there, but what's the, the or excuse me on that list. What's funny about that though, is that every time I do return to it, I, I, find myself thinking, why don't I watch this movie every, oh, yeah. every two Same. months? Same. You know, I, I'm like, this is so incredible and such a great ride. Uh, I, and it's it very, we'll talk, you know, extremely well-paced, relatively short. So I always think like, man, I should just rewatch this movie every like six months and I just forget. And then yeah. two years go by and I, I finally make it back. Uh, real quick, Mike, I don't think either of us maybe have that much to say about George Miller. He's a, Suffice it to say, he's one of the most fascinating figures, I think, in, in directing of the last like 40 years. Sure, as yeah. we hinted at at the beginning, he's just so wild in, in how, how different his movies can be. I, yeah. I hadn't even mentioned a movie I haven't even seen, Lorenzo's Oil, which yeah. came out in 1992, <laughs> for which he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Screenplay, and I believe it's a romantic drama. Um, and... Yeah, he just he just balances around between these crazy different genres. And when it came to this movie, which we're going to talk about a little bit, he said he had no intention of returning to this world. But I think the idea came to him and uh, suddenly he was excited. It basically, he just said, I, I realized there was something new I could do and was like, cool, let's do it. Even 30 years later, I'll I'll hit it again. Yeah, um, yeah. Also, Mike, I don't know if you've heard, he has a movie that is in post-production called 3,000 Years of Longing, which is an epic fantasy romance film that stars Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton. Ooh. Here's the premise. A scholar content with life encounters a jinn, D-G-I-N-N, who offers her three wishes in exchange for his freedom. Their conversation in a hotel room in Istanbul leads to consequences neither would have expected. This is the guy who just made his previous movie was Fury Road. Yeah. I don't understand it. And the only other uh, movie but, he has in production right now is Furiosa, the sequel to this movie. So, you know, like, I don't know, man. This guy calls his I shot. I don't get it. He calls his shot. I don't know what he's doing. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm getting a ticket opening night. Like, I'm, Keep us I'm, guessing, baby. Keep, keep people on their toes. I love that. Uh, okay, well, let's get into it. So in this podcast, we divide how we talk about the movies into a few different sections. We're going to start with what worked about the movie, just kind of listing some positive things. We'll have a section of what doesn't work or what maybe holds the movie back. Then we have some stray thoughts, and then way later, we each have prepared an essay diving deep into some aspect of the movie. 
Uh, but let's start out with what worked about this movie. And for the, I don't know, fourth week in a row, fifth week in a row, <laughs> the we've shot ourselves in the foot slightly in terms of we're going to have to gush for like yeah. you know, 45 yeah. minutes to an hour and a half. Uh, and again, for the fourth or fifth week in a row, the first thing on my list is the the visuals. Yeah. Um, which is that this is just an un, unbelievably good looking movie. Absolutely stunning. And yeah. An abs- absolutely stunning action movie. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I think the thing I wrote that, that is really key to remember, uh, people don't necessarily realize this, I think, in hindsight, but in the years just preceding this movie, big action movies had become like increasingly monochrome. You think about the Takens, the Jason Bournes, Craig era Bond movies. They weren't like, I think, I think especially interested with color palettes and with, you know, all of these kind of dynamic, striking, vis- stylized visualizations. Um, but this movie, despite the fact that it takes place in a desert, which you would think is one of the least kind of colorful, interesting to look at scenarios you can imagine, is actually so visually arresting, right? You yeah. think about the deep blues, the, the, the harsh reds, the orange, every color on the spectrum at some point gets presented to you. You think about the amazing, um, what's it called? Du- uh, a sandstorm scene. Yeah, the, oh, the lightning, yes. Uh, oh my God, the lightning and the and the dark purples. And they just, they just end up playing creatively in the space of, of visualization so much. Uh, and, and to be clear, Mike, I'm not here yet talking about production design or uh, um, stunts, but just in terms of visuals, like the composition of shots, I don't know if you have anything on that, uh, but I just think it's spectacular. Yeah, no, I mean, I without getting into those other topics, like you said, which I'm sure we'll gush about even more than this somehow. Um, every color choice in terms of palette in this movie is is just like Mwah, chef's kiss, right? Uh, yeah. Small details like the, the cutting Furiosa's face in half with the oil, uh, or the yeah, you know the so white good. the white yeah. paint on the War Boys. I was thinking of the canisters with the different color powders that they're shooting into the airs as the air as they're like chasing Furiosa and Mad Max. Mm-hmm. Each of those, like in a really weird way, acts as almost like an accent wall in a room where it is like this really bleak, you know, desert landscape, and then there's like these bright flashes of color that aren't neon, but they just pop, and it fills the. Yeah. It, it just makes the entire shot looks so much better in a with just a small burst of color in these ways or a small accent like i said on face paint or something like that it it really is stunningly beautiful in small and large detail it's one of the best parts of the movie so with you 100 percent. i love that comparison to an accent wall that's exactly how it feels like that it takes elevates all those little touches elevate uh what otherwise could have been a very yeah, bland looking movie. Uh you mentioned uh Furiosa, you mentioned the 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 War Boys. Um just piggybacking off of that, you know, I I threw out their production design. Uh the amount of physical things they made for this movie. Oh, it's crazy. And the amount of design elements. It actually reminds me a little bit. I I've been on a project recently. I've been trying to rewatch a lot of movies from my childhood that I haven't seen in a long time. Going back to the original Star Wars, like I think something people take for granted now was just how creative those movies were mm. in terms of production design. Yeah. Uh, but this is right there in that tradition, right? If not exceeds that. Um, 
just the number of different ideas, some of which only come up for a second. Like you think about the whatever those creatures that that were around the crows and that one like quagmire, yeah, 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 that were walking on stilts in the water, and and of course the whole thing with the citadel and the and and the like like every element someone thought about the design and yes. thought about what would that look like in this extremely strange world and this with all these different rules about what's valuable and what you know what a commodity is and what survival means and things like that i actually wrote um just and this might be an aside but i i wrote mike that this almost reminds me of dune uh because you know the thing i read about dune that i really appreciated was that dune has this idea that given enough time in a different environment humans will barely resemble what we know of as humans mm. and you think about this movie and you and you just like the the swath of characters living in this post-apocalyptic uh wasteland and creating societies that are so um again so so viscerally different than ours with such different rules of who has power and you know what what people look like and how people uh, uh, rise and fall and things like that and again all of that is mirrored in the production design yeah and, and that's what sells you on how alien this landscape is how unnatural to us all of these people are incidentally also as a situation where the uh 80s movies don't even approach this one by the way as yeah. great as that production design was uh this is just kind of a different level um i don't know if you have anything on that in, in addition to that yeah, I think the only other, like, really design-oriented production thing I would want to touch on is the vehicles, because that's kind of a perfect example yes. of what oh you're my God. talking about. Yeah, they're so diverse. Yeah. Each one plays a role. Each one invites you into both the alienness and, in a weird way, like, the relatability of, like, a fallen, broken world where people do absurd things. But they also just, like, by their design, convey so much, like... um implicit knowledge about the various factions you know the spiked cars the motorcycles you know the the ones that have the, the harpoons and the bulls and the, the yeah. bullet farms yeah 100 percent. each one is unique and each one fleshes out this world without saying anything it just like by yeah. how they they so thoroughly thought through what they want to convey by the looks and the setups of these vehicles they are doing world building without exposition which if i can tangent is the second thing that always sticks out to me about this movie in terms of what makes it work is that this is wildly successful world building with almost no exposition at all. And my monologue yeah. is going to be about this. So I'm just going to touch on it briefly, but like outside of that really, really short introduction voiceover, this movie is like almost repulsed by the concept of like exposition of telling the audience <laughs> anything and yet what's amazing is despite how little it act, the movie actually tells us explicitly, it is so easy to get how this world works in all of its strangeness. Like it's almost like osmosis. Yeah. Like you absorb the mythology of things like the roads of Valhalla. You, you absorb the infantile regression of human civilization, especially like in terms of how Nux talks and like the really kind of almost childlike way that they communicate in this world. Mm. You know, there are little tidbits from the destroyed worlds about like McFeasting in Valhalla. I mentioned that earlier. Or they say Aquacola at another point, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's like yeah. in this crazy way, it tells you nothing. And yet you are constantly understanding fully how this world got so strange. 
but also like how yeah. it works. Like you said, power dynamics, hierarchies, all these things you just get implicitly. It's astounding. Like, I think it's yeah. hard for us to comprehend how hard it is to write a script that way and to be successful mm. at actually conveying what you want without words. I mean, it's literally like without really anyone explaining anything. I don't know. I'm gushing, but that that's always part of this movie when I return to it that just... I, I say blows my mind too often, but it really does blow my mind. That is astoundingly hard to do. I totally agree. And and if this is going to cut too close to your essay, you can warn me and, and we'll, 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 we'll save it for later. But, you know, I, I tend to think that one of the most underutilized methods of world building is in fact culture mm. because we are actually so geared to pick up on cultural differences, but also similarities uh, and that's just something that our brains are conditioned to look for and notice and, and draw out of art. And again, it's surprising to me how much world building just totally forgoes that, right? Yeah. And, and like you said, gets caught up in exposition or in, uh, you know, dialogue about, or, or, you know, all these different things of like, well, here's what happened. But it's like, yeah, but rather than telling me what happened, you could just show me the effects it has on how people talk mm. and what people do. And, you know, what, like, like, for example, if I was, we now know that if, if you were creating a world where a, a huge pandemic had just been ripped through the entire population, people would talk about it casually in terms of, oh, the, you know, the virus is flaring up again. I don't really want to travel right now. Like, that's a sentence that you would hear offhand that we now just say mm. that is indicative of the culture that we've entered into. Right. So it's not like we we exposition each other about, well, ever since the coronavirus hit in 2020, <laughs> things have been a little tough. Right. Yes. Right? So, oh, when world governments so, fell apart because they couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but that is what lazy screenwriters do. Yeah. And what, yeah. what lazy storytelling does that I think this well, totally foregoes. I don't want to call it lazy. I think it's easy. That's true. And sometimes yeah. it's even effective in other movies. But. I, I don't want to critique. Uh, there are movies that are lazy. Don't get me wrong that yeah. over monologue. There are also movies that like, I just think this is hard to do. This is exceptionally hard to do and still be good. Like most yeah. movies that try to talk as little as this one does are confusing. You don't actually understand what's going on. And that's actually a detriment to the movie. Like the stunning part of this movie is how effectively you are grounded and see and how quickly you seem to understand why these people are doing what they're doing or why they exist yeah. the way they exist. Right. So I mean to cut you off. I, I want this to no, be a celebration rather than a critique of other movies. Uh, what, what I'm trying to say is that every other movie sucks. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Next year row. Greatest movie ever. Special, question mark. Special <laughs> shout out to our friend, Max. This is what the prequels uh, do terribly. <laughs> I've been wanting. I've, Pot shots. <laughs> Pot shots. Not even to the prequels, just to Max. We love you, buddy. Uh, that does segue, though, Mike, if, if you'll allow me. Yeah. Um, into what is actually kind of my biggest thing of how this movie works. Because you said, because if we're thinking about how they're able to pull this off of, of having such spare dialogue and such spare exposition, I think a, a huge reason why is because the story is so simple on its surface and mm. that that requires a little bit of, of dissection um and this is also where my essay kind of goes to so maybe we won't do too much but just real quick simple in this context does not mean um not thematically 
impactful, right? Yeah, it, yeah. it's a, it's an extremely affecting movie, I think, and and is able to do. It's almost the definition of doing a lot with a little. But when you boil it down, it is a two-hour chase scene. Yeah, right? yeah. And in fact, it's more than that. It's a chase one direction, and then they chase the other direction. Yeah. That's literally what happens in this movie. Yeah. But again, you know, I, and I've said this now many times, that I, I will always take a small story with big personal stakes for our characters over a quote-unquote big story. They're not saving the world. They're not, you know... Uh, uh, reinstituting society or creating a government and we're not spanning multiple weeks in this whole epic journey it is just two days in a two-hour chase scene that is this movie but the key thing is that the characters still have these dramatic arcs mm-hmm. and the characters still go on journeys by which we 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 end up going on those journeys with them and i don't know like it's just an inc- it's just incredible incredible storytelling i actually want to call out um a couple things with the story mike and and you can you can weigh in on these as we go down the list sure um to start with the idea of taking a mindless foot soldier and giving him arguably the most dynamic and important character oh, yeah. arc in the character arc in the movie is just amazing yes and we're talking here about is it is it nox or nux nux what is yeah, it yeah nux nux okay yeah who's played by nicholas holt uh who, who does a terrific job. All the cast does. I'm sure we'll, we'll mention that later on too, but that's such a cool idea that even movies with far higher quote unquote literary aspirations, I don't think even approach that idea, right? Yeah. Of taking like the most sold out again, mindless soldier and putting him on his arc. And I remember even in the theater when I first saw the movie, the scene where, cause first of all, there's that incredibly, you feel bad, but kind of super funny seed when he oh, yeah. uh, is talking to... <laughs> Mediocre! To, yeah, yeah. He totally <laughs> fails doing... My, my mind's going blank. What's that guy's name? Morning Joe. Joe right? Morning Joe. Morning Joe. Come on. Gives him this amazing mission, and then he literally just falls on his face. And <laughs> but, but the follow-up scene, one of the girls finds him in the back, and he's sitting there with a thousand yards there, laying down, unable, essentially catatonic, because he feels like he's he's betrayed his entire life. His entire narrative has fallen apart. Yeah. And then the rest of the movie is him creating this new, much more uh, valuable narrative, I guess. Or, or yeah. much more... I don't know what the word would be. But but that's so cool. That's like... And again, this is all in, in, in extremely spare storytelling. They managed to sell that kind of arc. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. But do, do you have anything on, on that specifically? Well, specifically on on Nux, man, his final witness me is like such a that hits beautiful encapsulation of the hero's journey and like the transformation. And and I honestly think in a weird way, it's it's one of those things that gives this movie such an edge is that it really is a one of one in terms of subverting just a lot of action movie tropes like you're talking about. Like, the nameless foot soldier is the one who goes on the hero's journey in this movie. The female mm. lead is paired with a silent male co-star, right? There is no romantic subplot. Like, these are all things that work so well about this movie that I think are key parts of it becoming a masterpiece, but in a crazy way, and buried within this popcorn movie are all these, like, subversive elements that are actually fascinating when you sit with them. But I think one of the things that makes this movie so cool, and this is kind of what you're talking about in terms of, 
it being simple but not shallow, is that there is something really profound about how Fury Road can draw you into a lot of deep thought about things like environmentalism, feminism, capitalism, hero, like what a hero is, the idea of turning people into capital, yada, 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 while simultaneously not requiring you to engage those concepts at all to appreciate the film, right? Yeah. This movie can be a simple, fun, like you said, hour and a half car chase that is the most visceral primal movie you've ever seen and still be awesome and great. And it can also be a movie that if you actually think about Nux, you actually think about Furiosa, you actually think about what Miller is doing with these subversive elements, it actually can bring you into like some pretty deep reflection about the state of our world and cinema and what storytelling is and what a hero's journey is. I don't know. That That's almost like as complimentary as I can be about a film is that it's so universally yeah. appealing in a way that you probably don't expect from a movie called Mad Max Fury Road, right? Um, it's Absolutely. just great. Yeah. What I wrote is that it trusts its viewers and itself as all great art does, right? Yeah. So it trusts itself in the terms of they, they take big risks, essentially. And it trusts the viewers that we're still going to be interested in a movie that is going to do thing is going to askew a lot of standard narrative devices. You already mentioned some of my favorite ones, but also you think about we don't like get to know our characters intimately before they're thrown into the fray, right? Yeah. Like yeah. in fact, we you know we barely get to know them at all from a certain perspective, but we we just kind of goes right into the thing. We don't spend thirty minutes working on motivations and settings and all of this stuff. It's all of that are moves that the only reason why why big Hollywood um, doesn't do that very often is because they don't trust that people will be there for it. They yeah. believe that people will say, will check out and will be like, okay, well, I don't, you know, I need you to, to hold my hand. I need to be explained more things in order to appreciate what you're doing here. So that's, it's a remarkable, uh, what would the word be? It's, it's a remarkable calling a shot moment i think just the entire movie taking yeah. a certain from a certain yeah. perspective 100 percent. um you know i'm interested because you left one out so i just have a question i guess because i also think because there's a lot of dialogue surrounding the character of max in this movie whether or not he's even the protagonist um you know how if his character succeeds or not i actually do really like his performance and character i do think furiosa is obviously the protagonist yeah uh but, but I, I do think Max has a legitimate character arc in the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, I, so, I guess I, so I guess the question for you, Mike, is do you agree? Do you think that his arc, because his arc, again, while maybe not the most impactful, still has arguably one of the biggest decisions in the movie. And like a character, I think, ultimately boils down to the decisions that they make in the story. If your character doesn't make a decision, they're probably not a character. They're more of a plot device. Um so if you think about Max, his main, you know, he makes, I think, two of the biggest decisions in the movie. The initial sure. decision to help them and then the decision when he's kind of still wants to be on his own uh, to, to go and suggest to them, which I will have thoughts on later, but to go and suggest to them we should go back to the Citadel. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I think his arc actually does land. I will say it lands much more on repeat viewings. I'm not yeah. sure if he was the takeaway the first time. Yeah, um, I think so that's... I guess, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. No, I think that uh, just ditto. And I, I think the first time I saw this movie, I thought he was more of an audience stand-in for the world. Mm -hmm. um, and that's largely because of a misinterpretation of his silence, right? 
I think as I have returned to the movie, he is a stand in in my mind for like essentially the hopeless finding hope again, or at least being willing to help the person in front of you. Like that's the journey he goes on is that he is someone who has given up any hope of this world ever not being a horrible, horrible place and is Mm. seems content to live just navigating it and trying to survive. Right. And for him to, by the end of the film, have gone on such an arc that he makes a choice to just help this pocket of survivors um, to any capacity. And then ultimately, like you said, the choice to go back. I I do think that's like the key of his arc. And there's a lot there. So I'm not trying to disperse the man. I just think that this is Furious's movie, um, partly because of the writing and partly because, um, well, we'll talk about an actress who is a bombshell, like badass in this movie. When well, we get to that. I mean, let's just, I, I'm good yeah. just to go there unless you have yeah. anything else on the story. No. Uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, Charlie's Theron is Imperator, Un- Imperator, Un- I keep mis- saying that, Imperator Furiosa, uh, which, so let's just start here. You know, regardless of gender, one of the best action kind of characters ever in any action oh, yeah. movie. Oh yeah, 100%. Yeah. Not really too much of a debate there. And uh, I mean, I don't know. Do you just want to cook for a second? Because uh, I know, I know I, you're, you're, I mean, you're in on this. She's a force. This is her movie. Like, I, I yeah. it's funny. <laughs> in a crazy way, talking about that subversive element, she might be the, the, the prime example. Because she's essentially Mad Max, if you look at the old movies. She is playing that yeah. role, and Tom Hardy is not. Which is such a ballsy choice, especially if you think of it as, like, a really fun counter to the fan service of, like, the Star Wars franchise these last few years where they're seemingly like, we're just going to try to make our nostalgic uh, toxic fan culture happy and just try to feed yeah. them what they want. And apparently Miller was just like, actually I'm going to make uh, Mad Max never talk and make Charlize Theron, the new Mad Max essentially, which is just awesome. I mean, and yeah. And the biggest praise I can give to, to Theron is uh, a, a, a choice like that. Like, it's kind of like a, if you're going to take a shot at the king, don't miss. Like, if she is yeah. not um, Sigourney Weaver level great as an action star, this movie falls pretty flat on its face. And she delivers every single scene in the most subtle and overt ways possible. She is awesome in terms of, like, physical action, in terms of beating people up, shooting people, all that stuff. The stunts. She is awesome in terms of the trauma that you can read into her character and pick up pretty quickly from her facial expressions, from the the clear wrestling on her face as she like begins the journey, as you start to realize she's about to betray a Morden Joe. I, I, I don't know. It's a tour de force performance. Um, this is truly one of those like Oscar biases where she isn't in an action movie, so she didn't get nominated. But this, I mean, I think this is one of the best performances I have ever seen certainly an action film but i honestly just think in general when it comes to female actresses i totally agree and i i think and honestly i don't have that much to add other than to say you know she i i i want to say she's overlooked in general as an actress which feels utterly insane because she is one of the most acclaimed living actresses at this point um, and you think back even like to, 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 I think like early two thousands when monster came out and, and things like that. Like she's, she's been out here forever yeah, and is doing well and is, is great, but all the same, I, I managed to forget her every now and then, and then see her in something like this. I, I, 
and it was sort of a watershed moment when this came out that there was a sense of this is so such an overwhelming powerful performance it's kind of uh yeah it's just crazy it's so so good Yeah, so I mean, I don't have that much more to say on that, but uh, if it's okay, just moving on to her counter in this movie, and technically the lead, if you were to go by the yeah, title, sure. but everyone knows he's not, uh, Tom Hardy gets a strange amount of hate for this performance. I, yeah. I don't, I can't totally wrap my, do you, I don't know, do you, is that your take? I No. I, mean, I don't get it at all. It, it's so weird in researching for this pod. Uh, it was the first time I found out people don't like his performance in this movie. Like, and then I was like, oh, people really don't like this movie, uh, this performance. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I have noticed his changing accents in this movie. Like he does some weird voice work in terms of like. Yeah. But honestly, it's not a, a hindrance in my mind. And I actually think he's great. I strongly disagree with people who hate it, but I'll let you yeah. talk about it. I, I love him in this movie. I think he's perfect. I think he's great. I think uh, he's, I mean, uh, just this is not necessarily a compliment, but I do want to note that, you know, in the in that weird way that actors often have some strange thing that often comes up in their movies, Tom Cruise very famously runs in almost every movie he's in. I don't know exactly what it is with Tom Hardy and having something on his face <laughs> that prevents you from seeing him. But at this point, it's genuinely weird. Yeah. You, like, literally, I think, um, what's the... the uh, Inception is the only counterexample where it's just him being kind of a handsome guy the so, whole movie. So this was every uh, other movie for some reason he's got to put something on his face for like half the movie at least if not more. And yeah, he serves it. He's he's good at it. So I guess whatever. It's just weird. I don't get it. Yeah, real quick. Uh, this is another straight thought that you've cruelly robbed me of. But like our you. boy, our boy Tom Hardy definitely got James Bond buzz after Inception. And literally responded by covering his face, never speaking, and only making weird crap, like, ever since. And it is yeah. so strange. It's just like, the, he was just like, nope, don't want to do that. And just did the opposite forever. I, uh, it's so weird. I actually wrote down that if uh, if Tom Hardy had been born maybe, like, 20 to 30 years earlier, I don't think he could have escaped the clutches of becoming like a straight leading man. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I don't because, know how he did think, now. I'm going to be honest with you. I think the only reason he was able to now is because the rise of superhero movies as the mega blockbusters have changed the language of like what it means to be a big leading man. Like but, the, the big actors aren't as big as they used to. But even when he and did so that, like, he made Venom, which is the he strangest made Venom, exactly. movie. He still got into the game, but he got into the game with like, let me do this weird thing. And you're, and you're like, oh my God. Uh, but no, he's incredible. I, I agree that there's some interesting voice stuff. You know, people will bring up the thing like, like you, you know, you mentioned the accents, the way the, the voice thing, which I, I did mention to Mike before we recorded, you know, Mel Gibson sounds a lot like that in the first, in the 80s sure. movies. So in that sense, it, it may or may not just be continuity. I also do think it works for the tone of the movie and the yeah. character that he's, I agree. he's supposed to go on this journey of like, like you said, being truly beyond hope. And and being so haunted by these past demons and his inability to protect people. I forgot, this is kind of an aside, I forgot how harrowing so many of those shots are, those like little quick cuts 
of the people that he that he like the ambiguously he failed these people in the past. Yeah, the little yeah. girl that keeps coming up and uh, you know uh, all this thing. Which actually, shout out, we didn't mention the first five minutes of the movie is like a punch in the face. Yes, uh, or like an adrenaline shot. It's just this you know hyper um, sped up filmmaking as he's getting caught and branded and then running through and then going through all of these. Uh, characters. The movie also uses uh, uh, this weird thing of framing a character in the center and zooming in on them. It mm-hmm. does that a lot. And You're it's, right. It's a yeah. very weird looking shot that, again, just sort of amps you up. You're just, it's high energy, it's high octane. Um, but yeah, he, I, I think he just does his job extremely well. And I'm, I'm there for his entire journey uh, in this movie. Um, I only had one more actor I specifically want to call out. Everyone is great in this movie. Uh, and, and you know, I, I probably could should have written down a few more. But I do just want to call out Nicholas Holt. Yeah, uh, my boy. I believe this was kind of a breakout for him, if I recall, right? This, Oh, and he, he had already been in X-Men First Class as well. Yeah. Uh, which maybe yes. was more of the breakout. But, I mean, that movie I don't think is actually very good. This was, I think, a huge moment of just, wow, this guy's this guy's great. And like I said, he's one of the most interesting sort of journeys in the movie. And again, he has to sell it and he has to uh, be totally crazily sold out to this cult, essentially, at the beginning. But then make you really feel for him when he when his entire worldview gets crumbled um, and then do and then kind of go on again, maybe the most affecting emotional arc. Do you have anything on on my boy? Um, I mean, not a whole lot. I kind of just like Nicholas Holt in in like everything I've seen him in for the most part. He's made You're a big Tolkien guy. <sighs> I didn't even he, see it, and I feel and I like I love Tolkien. He's made I, some stinkers, um, but that's <laughs> kind of par for the course for someone who's been working since as young as he was, um, and ma- and making as much stuff as he has. But yeah, he's, how dare you call Tolkien has a. Ooh, 51% around. Yeah, okay. We're, let's move on. <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> okay, yeah, let's move on. <laughs> anyway, uh, but he he is he does a lot. He conveys a lot with a character that, you know, isn't really tasked with, like, a lot of talking at times. And when he is, is often a butt of a joke early on. And he really takes it on that journey, like he said, to take him seriously by the end, which you kind of think would be impossible when you first meet his character. Um and that's, I don't know, that's a testament to both the script and how well he brings it to life. Um, you know, I want to shout out two other actors before we move off of the cast. Um, first, Hugh Keys Burns as a Morton Joe. Okay, yeah, I, don't, I did actually have him in my stray thoughts. I that, don't go, go ahead. know if this is a good performance, quote unquote, hashtag trademarked. Um, You're right. It's an incredible performance. But I love it. It's yeah, a perfect I lo- performance. I yes. love it because he has a job to do and he gets that job done. And that's what I love yeah. about him. Um, it's it's so ridiculous and gross. And oh, man, he is. He is. His, the wor- his He is, is the worst. Pretty... <laughs> Sorry, I was just going to say his death is pretty gut wrenching, too. It's pretty. Oh. Yes, it is pretty brutal. So satisfying, though. It's one of the most satisfying villain deaths of all time. Um, For such a brutal man, he dies brutally. That is is true. Um, And then the last actor, uh, I'm not even going to say the actor's name, but just going to shout out the Doof Warrior, man. My boy. (laughs) My My boy. boy. Physical acting at its finest. He, He gets it. 
and he nails it. So you there know, you Mike, go. I am I am a musician, and <laughs> I I think I did something wrong in life to not get a role like this. I think every guitarist <laughs> ever who doesn't who did not get this role is worse for it. That yeah. guy might be now the best guitarist in human history just yeah. for that role. Uh, it's un- it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's well, it's legendary. Thoughts. Um. <laughs> Did we? I'm not sure if we specifically. So you're good with the cast. No one else yeah. to shout out specifically. I'm not sure if we specifically said this already. So let's just get it out here. The stunts in this movie are incredible. Yeah. And there's been a there's been a rising tide of uh, or not rising tide, but, but a rising voice uh, chorus of calling for a uh, best stunts Academy Award. Mm. Um, and I think a movie like this is a great example of why that should be true. Because yeah. you think about the the poll people or whatever that oh are, my god you know, dude the, and, and so many of the sons in this movie are just real they just yeah. did that and yeah uh, it's also incidentally a great example of, of how to effectively use cgi and this actually yes. goes all the way back to production design but they they mostly made these things and then just used cgi to clean up the little you know little like safety things or little things that didn't quite fit the shot and so mostly you're just seeing real things happening and yeah, again, stuff like that. I can't get over the pole thing specifically because some of the greatest shots, one of the greatest shots of the movie is when they, I think it's near the end, they're already on their way back uh, to the Citadel, but there's this ominous chord playing and the camera backs up. It's like a helicopter shot from the war rig. And then as it backs up, the pole guys start sort of slight, like falling into view on their poles and then jumping back out. And, you know, and then it ba- it's backing up and you're seeing more and more of the convoy that's chasing them. And it's just so cool looking. And it's so incredible to imagine that someone was actually doing that. Uh, yeah, it, it's great. It's it's some of the best stunt work I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I don't really have anything else to add. Um, yeah, that's fine. It is the perfect blend of practical effects and CGI. It is, um, you know, I specifically mentioned the pole vaulters too, just to affirm you and to let you know that yeah. I also was just like, there's something about this that makes me geek out to a level that nothing else does. Especially when you think about like how they combine that with like the, the fuel tanker exploding while Max is flying back and forth on one of them. Oh my God. It, you yeah. just, it's, it's one of those movies. And this is, I guess all I will say it's one of those movies that has three set pieces that I can not decide. Every time I see the movie, I think one of them is now my favorite of the three. When you think of like the, the various chase scenes to the Canyon, the sandstorm, the, the ride back. Um, and then on top of that, it's one of those movies that multiple times I'm just like, I don't know how you did that. And I don't think there's a better compliment you can give to a stunt and action director that and with a practical effect they left me kind of stunned at like how did you pull that off i it's yeah. it's just a, it's amazing work so yeah it's art that's about it. and i think that's the that's the thing that people are why people are pushing for that at, to be recognized by the academy because they're doing some of the most creatively exciting and obviously most dangerous work i mean a good stunt director mitigates that danger significantly but there's always yeah. inherent risk to it and uh, and they're doing it for these incredible, uh, you know, moments in films. Some of the most memorable moments in films come back to that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's it's so so cool. Yeah, I think the the last thing also I would say about the action is is kind of just a shout out to Miller, and we talked about this with um, one of the not horrifying elements of Temple of Doom, one of the positive elements of Temple of Doom, 
is that in really fast moving action sequences, Spielberg is a master at you as the audience somehow always knowing where everyone is, even if the scene is as chaotic as possible. And that's kind of how I felt in this movie. Like there are things going nuts all around it. The poles are flying back and forth, you know, cars are speeding by. And yet you always feel like you understand like where Furiosa is, where Max is, where the, the, the attacks are coming from. Even though you're constantly like inside the rig, you still seem to have a sense of, of setting and where, where things are placed around them. And that's just stunning action direction. So just wanted to give a shout out to that. There is a lot of ambition in the action in this movie, but his execution of making you feel like you're in it is, is really one of the more impressive aspects of the film. I think uh, that reaches a fever pitch in that climactic yes. last chase scene. Yeah. When you think about, there's a moment, and I even I, I specifically noted this that there's this moment where we are simultaneously following Max as he's sort of bouncing around the whole convoy. We're following some of the mothers on the rig as they're shooting the people, or the ones on the bicycle that are k- killing some of the guys, and the ones on the rig. We're following Furiosa in the front. We're following. Um, uh, Nux as he's you know as he's trying to fix the engine as he's jumping back and forth you're following like six or seven different characters in different physical locations we're jumping between all of them they're interlocking with each other and the entire time I know exactly what's going on yeah that's Mm. staggering that's Mm. just staggering yeah Um, so yeah I so I only had two last things uh, that are pretty quick Uh, the music is really good you know just really uh, the the guy who did the music uh, is is a what was it? I said the guy who did the music, the Doof Warrior, baby. Yeah, that's the that's <laughs> the, it. Yes. I was well. I was first gonna call out, which is really what right there. I was first gonna call out Junkie XL, who did the coordination for the movie. He's an EDM producer, um, and like you know, what I love is there's all of this diegetic music, right? So there's like real war drums that then become the actual drums. There's mm. even little touches. Like one of my favorite moments is I think Furiosa is. Ham is, is hitting her truck with a wrench to get the dust out, but then that beat becomes the music. Mm. Stuff like that is just really cool little touches. Let's talk very let, let's let's give the Doof Warrior his due. Let's give a 30-second shout out to probably <laughs> the most one of the most underrated things in any movie ever. To settle this once and for all, that is great because A. Uh, the rule of cool states that if something is just awesome to look at, then it, it deserves to be in a movie, and that obviously succeeds that. But also, you may hear people tell you that there's something quote unquote unrealistic or quote unquote stupid about that guy. And I want you to know those people are morons. This is a <laughs> war society, this is a whole a society entirely based on war. And there's an, there's a there's a concept in militaries called esprit du corps, which is basically keep morale up by whatever means possible. And if you think that's any more ridiculous than like you know snare drums back in the Civil War or people with boomboxes playing rock music today as soldiers go into war and stuff, it's exactly that same idea, just taken like the rest of the movie to eleven. So it, it totally makes sense. So anyone who says that is stupid. That's my hot take. Uh, do you have thoughts, Mike? Are you are you on my side here? Are you going to abandon me over you on know, this hill? You know, there there's a lot of people say that when they have their first child, they learn a level of like instinctual protectiveness that they've never known before. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
I tell those people that I have felt that ever since I saw Fury Road. Because anytime <laughs> someone slanders the Doof Warrior, there is a bestial part of my humanity that kicks into fight fight mode. And I want to tear them to pieces and protect my child. So yeah. I so I will I will not take any slander of my boy, my sweet baby boy. Have you so in retrospect, are you claiming the Doof Warrior as almost like emotionally kind of your first child? A spiritual first child, yes. There a we real, go. There was a real go. connection the first time I saw this movie, man. Uh, man I love it. You didn't think you were going to get such powerful emotional work on this podcast. <laughs> I, just, I just love it. It's amazing. <laughs> there's a lot going on here. Uh, and then my last point, and I don't have enough examples to make this maybe even worth mentioning, but I just want to say this movie is genuinely funny in a lot of places. Sure. What I specifically yeah. wrote down was the interchange of uh, Nux and his 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 pole guy or whatever when they're first going out to chase Fury Rosa. Yeah. And yeah. Nux yeah, keeps yeah. saying, he looked at me and the guy says he was scanning the horizon. <laughs> I just think, really, you know what? It may just be that line. I just wanted to call it that yeah. line is hysterical. Um yeah, there's 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 some good writing. There's some clever writing, even if it is a very very spare movie in a lot of senses. Mike, do you have yeah. anything else for why this movie worked? Um, yeah, I got one last one, pretty low key, but um, the fact that it's a sequel that works even if you've never seen any of the other movies in the franchise, um, is just really impressive. Like, and I've heard that from people who have not seen any other Mad Max, so I'm not just saying that. Uh, I think. It, it's really awesome that this can be a standalone movie or it can fit into the Mad Max theology or mythology, not theology. Whoa. Um, I was, I, I think, had way more questions on that yeah. for a second. I was like, I, well, let's I, dive I think, into that. I think it's success is actually even more impressive too. When you consider the horrible track record of sequels that arrive this long after like the last movie in the franchise, like Indiana Jones, Usually it's the, a cash grab. Yeah. 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 Uh, it, so yeah, I just want to shout it out as a, as a sequel that kind of works on its own, its own legs, its own, uh, foundations. So that's all yeah. I got. That was the last one. And and it's not even from a, uh, storytelling. I mean, it does it from a storytelling perspective, but also does it in terms of, it's not relying on nostalgia for the yeah. original product. No, it's in fact, it's hoping like I, that you're just so attached to max, you know, like I said, with the Furiosa comment, I actually think it spits in the face of that. Like it does not yeah. give people who are attached to max what they want. Um, yeah, it's it's such a ballsy movie, man. It's great. Yeah, it's it's incredible work. Uh, let's move on to what doesn't work about this movie, what maybe holds it back. And I only have one Ugh. thing, but it is a biggie. Ugh. But it is also I, I'm I, I need to know how much you how many detail. Well, let me just get into it because there's an elephant in the room that that yeah, yeah, is yeah, a pretty yeah, big yeah, elephant. Yeah, yeah. But here's the thing. For me, Mike, it was actually surprisingly hard to get details about this. So I, I'm going to be sure. curious what, if any, research you've, you've gotten. But uh, let, so let's just get out there. Uh, environmental damage. Uh, like I said, surprisingly hard to get details. But from what I gleaned, essentially within the first few movies of this, or sorry, within a few years of this movie's release, the newly appointed Namibian Environmental Protection Minister, which was a post that hadn't existed when the movie was approved to be shot there, says that it would never have been approved after he had been appointed and that the filming did serious damage to the habitat or to, to the environment it was in, including um, nearly wiping out a, a unique species of lizard and a unique cactus that grow almost nowhere else on the planet. Um, that was honestly all I was able to find. That in and of itself is pretty tough, but I just couldn't 
it was like I said, it was surprisingly hard to to find substantiated details. So yeah. that is tough, and and is one of those things where you know one of the things Mike and I often say with stuff like this is it's like, you know, you think did the movie have to do that? Like I I, I envision that they probably didn't need to. You know, they could have done this in a way where that wasn't a part of the filmmaking, and the movie would have been exactly the same. Uh, but since I found it so hard to, excuse me, to substantiate, I, I don't know if I have many more things to comment on it. Do you have any more details, Mike, or any other thoughts yeah. that, that I hadn't mentioned? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is, I mean, this is an issue. This is one of those moments where a, an issue outside the movie really does play a pretty negative role in how I think about it. Um, I worked in environmentalism and worked in our state conservation kind of uh, department here in Florida. And this did make its rounds when this stuff kind of came out of those circles because of how, I mean, quite frankly, like flagrant and alarming some of it was. So I got a couple more details. Uh, This is from a Guardian report that kind of summarized the ordeal. I'm going to read a quote and I'll talk about some more of what they found. So here's the quote from the Guardian. Uh, The filming of the latest Mad Max action feature in the world's oldest desert has caused a major outcry, with environmentalists accusing filmmakers of damaging Namibia. Mm, I can't do this one, John. Just go for it. Just go for it. Sensitive ecosystem. The film, the fourth Mad Max feature, was shot in the Darobe National Park along southern Africa's Atlantic coast. Scientists estimate the area is between 50 million and 80 million years old. A leaked environmental report claims crew damaged sensitive areas meant to be protected, and as you said, endangering reptiles and rare cacti. An important note, and this is I'm going to go, I'm going to summarize the rest. So that sets up what happened. Here is the other details that they found. So many of these animals and ecosystems are only endangered um, or noted to be incredibly declining or incredibly fragile due to climate change, which is obviously heightened by Western corporations, i.e. the people making this movie. Further, uh, there are claims that the government, in pursuit of money and ultimately trying to draw tourism through film to the country, approved them to do this before a real environmental survey was completed at all. In fact, they did no research. And that if it had been done, like you said, appropriately, they would never have approved the shoot. Also, an environmental watchdog report that came and looked and formed the report after the shoot reported that film crews shot in protected areas in the desert that had literally never been touched by vehicles before and that they had been asked to avoid. They found signs of vehicles running wild, nets dragging across the landscape, and the use of plows to flatten entire dune areas, which the crews then had apparently tried to intentionally cover over with sweepers after the shoot. Also, unconformed reports um, that they flew in sand from other areas, which would change the environment and obviously damage the species there because sand carries a lot of bacteria, yada, yada, yada. And that they also changed environments wildly for specific shots, including knocking down parts of the ecosystem and all sorts of behavior like that, which for a protected environmental area, especially a desert, which gets almost no rainfall and basically has to thrive in how static it is, is truly disastrous for the region. So those are all the notes I found. Obviously, there's some alarming parts. Like I said, there's some alarming power stuff about majority world compared to Western kind of corporations and climate change. There's also like a cover up that's pretty clearly um, reported to have taken place where they realized that they were doing things they should not do and causing damage that they weren't supposed to have caused and that they pretty much went out of their way to make sure or try to make sure people did not catch it on the environmental front. Um, All to say, that is a huge elephant in the room. Like you said, it's a real, I don't want to say bummer, 
it's actually kind of egregious. It's um, everything wrong with the, like our world in some ways, but it is what it is. Well, it's also just so stunningly ironic that it happens in a movie that takes yeah. place in a post-apocalypse due to climate change, like yeah. explicitly, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's is one of those things where we're going to reach a point where just like there's not too much more to say, but like you said, it, it drags the movie down. And I know I, at this point I'm a broken record, but I just can't emphasize enough that it just it, you just think like, well, I don't know if you needed to do that to make this effective. Right. Yeah. I, I just trust in them as filmmakers that they could have found ways around it. Um, the part I hadn't heard, and that is pretty stunning, is the idea that they would have known what was happening, but tried to cover it up. That's pretty tough. Yeah. I mean, um, and, and there's different opinions on whether they knew they were causing lasting damage to protected ecosystems. They certainly were trying to cover up that they were filming in areas they weren't supposed to be filming and making changes yeah. to the environment they were not supposed to be making changes to. Um, that much is... Yeah pretty clear in my opinion from the very vague facts because the other hard part of this is that the government itself has kind of actively tried to suppress a lot of this information um because they really approved this movie to come there as a tourist boom anyway and they don't want the negative yeah. press so it's complicated but it, it, it's just ugly um actually yeah. going to like this being avoided another deeply ironic darkly ironic part of this is that Fury Road was actually originally supposed to be shot in a desert in Australia. However, as a byproduct of rampant climate change in that area, that landscape had moved from a drought uh, area to one that receives heavy rainfall, which had created fields of wildflowers in a place that was once a desert. And that's ultimately why they ended up moving to the um, to Africa in the first place. So there's just like some really dark irony in uh, the, like I said, flagrant disregard for environmental concern for a movie that had to move because of environmental concern. And quite frankly, a movie that is uh, trying to warn us against the dangers of things like climate change. But yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. It's just tough. guys welcome back in this part of the podcast mike and i have each prepared a few stray thoughts uh generally we just go back and forth so mike i'm just gonna take one if that's cool yeah go for it um so i mentioned earlier margaret sixel uh, i hope i'm pronouncing that right is who edited this movie that's actually george miller's wife uh fascinatingly miller said that she had never cut an action movie before mm. but that was kind of why he wanted her to do it and the, the actual quote is that most of the time action movies were directed by the usual kind of guys, in which case it would look like every other action movie we see. And for what it's worth, she actually won the Oscar for her, her editing work in this Oof. movie. Uh, so that's a great, I, I just like the idea. It kind of gets to what we were saying about how this movie doesn't, doesn't play by the same rules as a lot of other Hollywood movies, Hollywood action movies would have, you know? And this is a great example of the advantage of that. You get someone in who's not maybe accustomed to editing these kinds of movies, and you're going to get some interesting work. And, and yeah, it, it is a really well-edited movie. So that's just a great a great little tidbit. Yeah, um, building off of that, uh, this movie had a seven-month shoot, which is incredibly long. It was shot in sequence alongside the script, which is incredibly rare. And then on top of that... It took two plus years to edit the film together because there were something wow. like 47 hours of shot footage, something crazy. Um, 
which for those who don't know, all of those numbers are incredibly ridiculously different um, and longer than any other project you're probably going to engage with. So to kind of shout out her again, I mean, this is like literally a life's work worth of editing and it comes together obviously in an astounding way. So shout out. Weird, uh, weird, some overtone similarity to the original star Wars, which a lot of people now know the story that is, was essentially saved in the edit uh, by um, three people, but one of whom is Marshall Lucas, who who at the time was George Lucas's wife. Uh, so, yeah, interesting thing there. But uh, but that's not my next straight thought. My next straight thought is a little bit different. I refuse to believe someone could survive as many car accidents and general <laughs> physical drama as Max in this movie. Yeah. If you just kind of start adding it up, and, and this time I wrote that down after the accident he has in the, in the I keep saying snowstorm, in the sandstorm. Oh, man. Um, There's like eight more. that's a real accident. <laughs> yeah, they, they like roll over a few times. And I'm sitting there thinking, so he's just dead, right? Yeah. But that's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. like, if this is a real movie, and of course it's not, it's not maybe the most realistic movie in every regard. Uh, but I just, I just refuse to believe he actually survives past the first, I don't know. 30 minutes of this movie just doesn't yeah happen. yeah the sandstorm one in particular is the one that i'm like he there's just no way <laughs> just, well i feel dead. like in the slow-mo shot you see him like his body like like you know flailing out into the into the sand and everything and i'm just like that's not how that works you don't just you don't just walk that one off you know yeah yeah i'm with you um so i get that it's an authoritarian gesture and doesn't have to make sense but a morton joe's means of distributing water just seems really inefficient and I, I really feel like he could get a project manager or someone like an executive kind of uh, involved in his organization because just like turning on those giant pipes and then turning them off. It's it just I don't know. It seems wasteful. Um, it generally is probably not wise in terms of uh, maintaining his control of that resource. So just mm. throw that out there. Would you would you go so far as to say that at the end? When they just turn them on and just leave them on, presumably, they're going to run into some problems okay. pretty quick. So this I, this leads into a later straight thought I have, but let's just do yeah, it now. Yeah, go for it, though. Yeah. Um, is this movie secretly a critique of Marxist sensibilities? Because I can only assume <laughs> that they run out of water after maybe two days post-revolution. That was exactly... it. Was I didn't realize a straight thought for some reason, but but I had that that thought at some point in this movie. I, I yeah. thought, mm, yeah. are Dang. they going to be able to sustain that, though? <laughs> Maybe, maybe a Morton Joe had a point. Is all I'm saying. Ooh, you know, awkward. <laughs> that got that got pretty tough pretty quick. But I don't know. We're just asking questions, right, Mike? That's yes, we're just asking questions. Uh. uh, shout out. We already mentioned them. Hugh Kaisburn was the actor playing a Morton Joe. Also played the main main antagonist. It, uh, toe cutter from the original Mad Max movie like oh, 40 years ago or something there you yeah. go I haven't seen that movie so that's like Mad Max 1 which I, I like, seriously have seen I think once and I, I don't think I've really paid attention uh, but you know shout outs to that guy heck yeah proud of him he's doing good work the Lord's work doing good work doing um, the Lord's work <laughs> um, will you let me tie you to the front of my car as I drive around Tallahassee. Was that the end of that question? Is that Yeah, that's all I got. 
<laughs> it makes you uh, feel better. I thought of you during that scene in our friendship. Thank, Does that make you feel better? Thank you, sort of. <laughs> okay. I, I got to tell you, it doesn't. I got, I, I got, I, I would have hoped we would have had like a more equitable sort of, sort of situation. Uh, but, uh, you know, Mike, we're good friends. Uh, so the answer is no, and not a okay. million years. Okay. I just, just, yeah. Tight. No, no way. Tight I would, dog. however, approve of you becoming my blood bag. If I'm ever in a situation <laughs> where I need, I need a little boost, I'll happily hook myself up uh, to steal your blood. That oh seems God. like a great situation. Uh, this is a straight thought, but it's also a question. Let's just settle it for, for at least between us, maybe not for the whole world. Mike, who is the protagonist of this movie? If Curious. you have name one. Okay, I agree. Just not curious. Uh, you know what? Kind of just a curiosity question. Yeah. But yeah, at yeah. least between us, it's good to know we just have that one nailed down. Yeah. Um, I also have a curiosity question. Uh, yeah. This or John Wick when he comes to action films the last decade? Man, I think I'm going to... I don't know how you're going to respond to this. Fury Road, and it's not that close. No, I think I'm with is, you. Is, is, yeah. Oh, really? Okay. I wasn't sure if you were going to take it. I Yeah, I I love John Wick, but I will take this you know, seven days a week. Over Straight up. Uh, really, going honestly, back, without thinking. Going back to your comment about, like, you rewatch it, and you're like, why don't I watch this all the time? I think I would have said John Wick before I watched it this last time. And then sure. I watched it, and I'm like, nope. If I've ever watched this movie recently, I'm never going to answer that, because this might be it. I mean, sorry. This is a masterpiece. I'm going to throw yeah. that out there. So, yeah, I'm not I'm sure you. why this movie fades in my memory, but like it, it is a weird thing that I, you know, a year from now, if you ask me, I might suddenly be like, uh, I don't know, maybe it's not that great. But like within six months after watching it, it's on my Ra Mount Rushmore, you know, yeah. and it's just 100%. Like, this is so I'm with good. you. It's so strange. Um, how this is my next straight thought. How the holy hell does Furiosa's plan work? Question mark slash. <laughs> Does Furiosa have a plan? And I'm talking about when they, like her initial plan to leave. We're going to get to the road back later on. But for now, let's just talk about her escaping from the Citadel. I kind of feel like she just goes for it. And maybe that's meant to even be part of the story is that she's at the point. She, I, she actually says at one point, I have the war rig, so this is the best chance I have. Yeah. But I find myself thinking, but was that the full extent of your planning? Was yeah. it just, did you get as far as, I have the war rig, I'm going to hide the girls, and uh, yeah, let's just go for it. And by yeah. some insane miracle, this works out. Well, I don't not, know, it's tough. I'm not going to claim this point, because I think this is actually from the Rewatchables podcast. But they also point out that like if there is a green place like in a war conqueror society, like even a rumor of that... Like, wouldn't they have already gone and tried to conquer it? Like, I don't think yeah. a morning Joe is really like, ah, I don't know. It sounds like a myth. I just don't think that's his vibe. Um, we'll just leave that there. We'll just yeah. not, not approach that. Or not, not even see that. if yeah. it's real. So I think there's yeah. just a lot, a lot of complications of the plan. Um, I don't catch that stuff in the movie other than on rewatches. Definitely true. did not catch it the yeah. first time. So not a plot hole. I agree. Uh, but it is a question. Go ahead. Yeah. Here's a question. What's well, two-parter? First, do you think a Morning Joe is just Harvey Weinstein? And second, do you think his demise is just a metaphor for the Me Too movement? Oh, my God. <laughs> ah, this is, you know, we've already had a couple bummers this episode. Oh, Mike. or what if what if this is like a Tarantino-style, like, redoing the past, where it's like that's what he wished 
happened to Harvey Weinstein. I accept, I accept that immensely. I yeah. actually wouldn't be surprised if in like 400 years when the details about movies from this era get a little fuzzy, someone doesn't just assume it is, it is essentially that character. Yeah. Weirdly okay. looks like him. Yeah. Like, I'm not even, I'm not even memeing right now. Like there's a couple shots. Where no, I'm like, with yeah. you. <laughs> Fat, gross slug man. <laughs> oh, we did it. Um, this is sort of, this is weirdly related to my last stray thought. So, or, or to my previous stray thought. Do you feel like going back to the Citadel is literally the worst idea ever that just so happens to work? <laughs> yes, I do. And I wrote this down. There's a moment where everything goes essentially totally to hell in their plan. And that was when I, I think I was on my notes and I wrote down, this is just a bad idea that they basically get really lucky happens to work out. That's my take on this movie and on that entire second, you know, last act of the movie. Uh, yeah. Agree, disagree? No, I, I'm with you. This is just, this is as much as like a calling your shot and the ball goes in. I'm actually like worried about Furiosa trying stuff like this again in the future because it worked this one time. Yeah. Um, it's like you got lucky, kid. Maybe, maybe do a little more planning next lucky. time. Um, yeah, I'm lucky. with you. I'm 100% with you. This should not have worked. And even as we say lucky, like more than half of their crew died. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. You know. Debatably is, lucky. Is Furiosa the villain of this story? There is her, now we're is her, the real is her management and strategic thinking the, the villain? <laughs> is her executive by functioning? Logic is imperi- <laughs> by that logic, is Immortan Joe the protagonist? <laughs> <laughs> he was this misunderstood. Uh, you know what? He made that society work, okay? He kept humanity alive. <laughs> he had some good ideas. I'm done. Okay. Yeah, this, is tough. Uh, this is tough. Go ahead. It's a little alarming before I move off that, that uh, someone like a Morton Joe ruling is not out of, out of the question for America in the near future. Anyway. Um, Yikes. Yikes. So what are we talking about? Oh, next right thought. So this is actually just kind of like a geeky thing. And you have to do mm-hmm. a little bit more research to really dive into this. But there's a, a key idea of this movie is that this is taking place kind of in pre-recorded history, that it's like oral tradition before humans start tracking history again. And I just mm-hmm. think that's a really cool wrinkle to the movie. And it kind of adds yeah. a a whole lot of stuff about mythology and what you can even trust that you're seeing depicted and and all of that stuff when you read it as like kind of a um a tale being passed down about this major event that may be exaggerated or mythologized or whatever else. So I don't know. I just, it's a kinky little tidbit about the film. I was originally gonna base my essay on this, but I, I didn't, so I'm glad you brought it up. Um but yeah, there's there's actually there is there is actually a really cool fan theory that Max himself is not even a single character, but mm. is a collection of stories people tell I love in the wasteland. That. I love and that. that's why and that explains how his character changes. That explains because like actually there was a, a backstory for his character in one of the early movies that doesn't really add up in this movie. Um but there's there's a lot of inconsistencies, but I think they make partially there's like well in a storytelling sense who cares like you said the movies stand on their own, but I, I do like the idea where it's you know just the the like you said the oral traditions that are happening in the wasteland sort of make Max into just a good guy character that comes yeah. up in all of these different things but then fades away, um, yeah I think it's really cool, yeah uh, bringing the the tone of the conversation maybe down a notch. Uh, there's a distinct lack of respect for different blood types in this movie. Um, my first version of this 
stray thought was, are we just lucky that Max's blood type matches Furiosa's? But then I realized I don't think anyone even noticed if Max's blood type matched Nux at the beginning of the movie. Well, no, he's a universal uh, donor. They tattoo it on his body. Oh, do they actually do that? Yeah, yeah. Man, look at man. Now I'm trash. George Miller outsmarting me again. Apologize right now. I, I humbly submit. I, I throw myself at the altar of George Miller and beg for his forgiveness. Yeah, Please no, it's a, to, to be fair to you, it is a really small, like throwaway scene where they're tattooing him. And they they're one of the things they're tattooing on his back is his blood type. And it says universal dinner. But in hindsight, that's now extremely cool that they thought about that. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's great. Again, production design. Look at man. So, yeah, like Look I said, you, that's barring me again. Can't get one past him. Uh, okay, well, yeah. Um, we already talked about this, but like a Morton Joe scoffing and just calling Nux mediocre feels worse than anything else he could have said. Literally yeah. anything else. It is. He brutal. doesn't even get that mad. He doesn't even. He, he's kind of like, like almost like he expected to be disappointed. Yeah. And yeah. That's yeah. that's in, that's intensely savage. brutal. Just savage. Uh, this is actually my last one, but I do like it. Max at the end of the movie demonstrates the ultimate Irish goodbye. <laughs> uh, one second, he's next to Furiosa. I swear he's on the rising platform. I didn't go back to check, but I feel like he's on the platform as it's rising. And somehow, inexplicably, the next shot, he's on the ground in the crowd walking away. Uh, I just want to note if someone ever asks me what superpower I most want from a movie, I think this might be my answer. <laughs> Getting out of social that just, settings. Just getting out of a social situation. <laughs> just somehow it's like one second I was next to John in the theater, and the next second I looked over and he was in the exit, just waving. That he was gone. That he was gone. <laughs> I I just love that. I you know uh, goals hashtag goals hashtag honestly. goals baby. Um, that, that's I, it for me. So you can just take the reins for a second. Yeah, I got about five left. So. First, is this movie better if Tom Hardy also plays a Morning Joe, but as Bane? Like he does the two character thing, but he's just like, uh, like just the entire movie. Just imagine Morning Joe as Bane. The answer is obviously yes. I, okay. I, it's not even, that's not even a question. I would have, that would have been an incredible movie. You know, and he Maybe was like, the sequel. And people knew that he was like really hard to work with and he didn't actually really want to be in this movie. That's another thing we didn't talk about, but that's yeah. apparently a thing. Maybe he would have been more excited if they told him he was allowed to do that. Just saying. You would have been more into it. You would have been like, that's weird enough for me now. <laughs> weird flex, but I'm in. Uh, yeah. What would you name your tumors? Your radiation tumors? I if liked, you were a, uh, a war boy. What, did, what was his again? I can't remember. I can't remember either. I, I I like kind of dog names, Buddy and Spike. Okay. I think, yeah, That's right. Because because it's it's like you know casual human names are weird. I'm not gonna yeah, I'm not gonna do like Steven or something. It's like no, nah, it's awful. I would name mine John. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I, was that all? Just got him. You just want to get there? Is yeah. That, that was okay. that was all we were doing. Okay. We're cool. gonna move Love on. <laughs> This is just a shout out. Uh, the Furiosa line, then who killed the world is an amazing line in a great summary of yeah. the movie. Just, we didn't yeah. do any line readings, but that is, it's great. Um, very simple. Uh, I have two Rictus points. The okay. first is Rictus yelling his own name as he prepares to die. Feels like a real big miss on his part. Just wanted yeah. to say, could have done better kid. Um, the second is 
a question, and that is, is Rictus, like, way too excited about his dad trying to replace him entirely in the family line? Like, is he that just, is... like, way too excited about that? I had, well, in in... Even even further than that, because so Rictus is his oldest son, right? Who's who's there? Yeah, for a while yeah, 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 yeah. Well, even further than that, when Rictus shouts about his his now deceased baby brother, that whole scene has such an odd tone, because yeah. theoretically everyone is extremely upset about this, but like from the doctor, or I think they call him the organic mechanic, which is an amazing touch. It to is yeah. the to uh, Rictus to even Morton Joe a little bit. They're all kind of like hyped on on what's happening, right? Yeah, like he's shouting yeah. with a lot of enthusiasm. I had a baby brother, I had a baby brother, and you're like, are you like, are you like amped? Are you jazzed? Are you what? This is I, I'm I'm getting conflicting messages here. Maybe well, that works for the place of the story, but yeah, well, it's interesting. I don't want to go on a tangent, but it's interesting if you think of all of this progeny stuff as performative especially in a time prehistory. I don't know. There's an interesting thing there, which is they obviously don't care about actually having progeny. They just care about the performative nature of it and power. Yeah. Um, and legacy. I don't know. There's something really interesting about that. I don't want to get into back it. Back to like a feudal, a feudal Lord in a sense. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 I never thought yeah. about that. But you're right. Yeah, it, I, that, that the tone of that scene has always struck me as odd too, but there's something yeah. interesting or it's unintentional and Rictus is a bad actor. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, on a, on, a, on a serious note, this movie, I, I I think it pays to not underestimate the storytelling prowess of this movie. So yeah. Yeah. let's just leave it there. Uh, True. That's it. I got one more. Okay, go and for it. And John, you should have seen it coming. But worse hang, Lewin Davis <laughs> or a Morton, Morton Joe? Here's the case for a Morton date for a Morton Joe. <laughs> you know, Mike, I'm gonna say it. He's a family man, okay? And whatever else you wanna say, whatever else you say about him, the guy cares about his sons and he cares about his family. And and the same cannot be said for Llewellyn Davis, so I'm gonna give the edge to a Morton Joe in this. You know, yeah, I I get that, and you know, Morton Joe's yeah. passionate about something. I feel He's like passionate. the problem, yeah, the problem with Lewin Davis, he doesn't care, and Morton Joe cares about stuff. Um, we don't need to, we don't need to judge the merits of those cares, but he is passionate. He is passionate, and you can't you can't undersell that. Yeah, I'm, I'm giving the edge to, to a Morton Joe here. I, again, don't even know if it's close. Tough this break podcast for Davis moving time. forward yeah. should just be bragging on Lewin Davis. Just, just try. And in case anyone doesn't necessarily totally get the bit, we like the movie. It's just the character, you know. Oh, there's he's a, the there's worst. Some questions. He's the yeah. worst. He's, he's the worst. Tough man. Thing. Oh, how about uh, this? Last one. Last one. Yeah, how about a, Mor- a Morton Joe versus the uh, the guy from Zodiac who lives with squirrels? <laughs> I'll just die if we get it. I, I, I'm ready to I move feel... on. Okay, just check it. You, you, you killed it. Uh, uh, that's it. Thank God for Stray Thoughts. Uh, stick around after the break. We will have some essays prepared. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, like I mentioned on this part of the podcast, Mike and I have each prepared some essays that dive deep into some aspect of the film. 
And Mike, I believe I'm going first, if that's okay. That is correct. Great. Well, here we go. As I've mentioned perhaps too many times on this podcast, when I was a kid, I was absolutely enthralled with Star Wars. I just couldn't get enough of it. Movies, video games, and even books were wholly and constantly being devoured in our household. At the time I was coming of age, this meant I had a lot of contact with the prequel trilogy in particular. And I still count as an important moment in my life the time that I read Matthew Stover's official novelization of Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Now I know what you're thinking. How could a cash grab movie tie-in novel based on a kind of regrettable entry in the series possibly be worth reading? I actually count it as a small miracle that I found the book when I did, because I'm pretty sure even two years later, my rose-colored glasses would have turned green, and I would have looked back on those prequel films with pretty much that same sentiment, thinking nothing more coherent than sort of disgust and disappointment. But I found the book when I was still on the Star Wars prequel train, and almost immediately after opening it, I was completely spellbound. What I found in that book was a novel that elevated itself far above the story of the film. Instead of drab descriptions of action sequences and bland retelling of the film's events, Stover chose to dive deep into the character's psychologies, making use of dramatic devices like second-person narrative sections, perspective flips within the same scene, and poetic introductions to each chapter, all to increase the empathy that you feel with the characters. He took an interesting story that, in the movie, was weighed down by subpar directing and mediocre dialogue, and used a few tools that only work in the context of a novel to bring out something much richer and more complex. But my biggest takeaway was just how different the novel was than the movie. Stover doesn't directly contradict the movie, but he wildly transforms the length and sequence of plot points in order to maximize his goals. For example, the attack on Coruscant, which is in the film just kind of the first action scene and lasts about 15 minutes, is fully one-third of the entire novel, as the sequence becomes the launching point for Stover's own particular themes and psychological profiles of his characters. Without using that extra time, without rearranging and cutting out and dramatically altering events, Stover would not have succeeded in making a compelling novelization of the story. And this was the first time I realized a simple but key truth to, I think, all art. The medium dictates the storytelling. This is one of those things that may or may not seem obvious, but which I think people often miss entirely. I often hear people, especially post kind of con culture and in internet discussion in general, praise a piece of art they like by immediately crying about how badly they want it to be adapted into other mediums. This is almost always true about movies specifically. Think of how often video game fans clamor for the inevitably disappointing film adaptation. Or how, before the MCU, the holy grail of comic book nerds was the idea of seeing their favorite heroes and storylines in movies. Hollywood, in fact, has a long tradition of adaptation, and indeed has grown fabulously wealthy in the last 20 years off taking stories from other mediums, novels, comics, etc., and turning them into films of varying quality. And while these adaptations have become a dime a dozen, 
One key thing to me seems apparent. The elements of a great novel do not inherently make for elements of a great movie and vice versa. Again, the medium must dictate the storytelling. Matthew Stover could have adapted the script of Revenge of the Sith more or less verbatim into a novel, but that wouldn't have made for a good book. In fact, it barely made for a good movie. Each medium is uniquely equipped to tell different kinds of stories in different ways. Which is why I've always been drawn to stories that can seemingly only exist in one medium. Stories that can't even begin to be adapted to another medium without substantial changes to the plot, characterization, tone, or style. And this finally brings us to Mad Max Fury Road, a perfect action movie that, crucially, can only exist as a movie. Fury Road's script is a terse 3,900 words, give or take. For context, most screenplays hover in the 15,000 to 25,000 word range, and 7,500 is sometimes considered an absolute minimum for a standard Hollywood script. Within those 3,900 words, our main protagonist, Max, has just 63 lines of dialogue. Furiosa, who Mike and I agree is maybe more likely to be the protagonist, has just 80 lines of dialogue. Numbers like that may fool someone into believing that Fury Road is light on story or impact. But just as a novel is built of letters but cannot be judged on its character count, a great movie is so much more than its script, dialogue, or even its characters. A great movie, like Fury Road, uses things that cannot be conveyed over words and pictures alone to make itself more compelling and powerful. To believe that the greatness of the film, the power of its themes, is limited in scope to what the characters say or do is to miss how a movie can take advantage of its medium. Consider the first time that Max helps Furiosa in the war rig. Without a word of dialogue, we feel the bond between the two start to strengthen, tepidly, gingerly at first, as they help each other fend off the biker attack. By definition, I can't actually describe this in words because the storytelling is about the motion of the things and the action and reaction and cuts and angles and visualizations. Or consider something as simple as the incredible coloring of the shots. A writer or even a comic book artist may describe or depict the dark blue tint of night, but only in the film does that tint convey the sense of calm and foreboding, the respite from the harsh daylight attacks and the passage of time as the odyssey continues. All of these film elements, in fact, are built straight into the DNA of Fury Road. Part of the reason for the script's incredible brevity is that the original conception of the story took place in storyboarding, which is sort of like a production comic book for action scenes, with the script coming after the fact. Again, if I was writing a novel or putting on a stage play, I wouldn't be able to use these tools in exactly this way. They are unique to the medium of film. As a brief aside, this is part of why I find myself so captivated with action movies in general. On the one hand, I like to think I can appreciate the more quote-unquote literary films, ones that aspire in their writing, thematic resonance, and styling to capture the same transcendent heights as a novel. But on the other hand, there's something joyous and exciting about a movie that does things with its medium which can only happen in film. Action and adventure may be criticized by some for their shallowness compared to more pretentious genres, 
But I think at their best, these movies tell stories through those sequences, a feat that cannot be replicated in other mediums and which requires just as much creativity and skill to render effectively. To close, allow me just one more childhood example that I think I probably bring up too much. My favorite video game when I was a kid was The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. It's a seminal, groundbreaking work that tells an epic story, one which jumps around time and space. It instills in the player a grand sense of adventure, but also paints with more complex themes and, and emotions, loss, redemption, and healing. Like a lot of young people at the time, I often dreamed of an Ocarina of Time movie or TV show, of someone capturing all of those feelings and emotions I felt while playing the game and shoving them into that medium that I more often watched and enjoyed. But unlike many other fans, as I got older, I eventually realized that by definition, a movie or TV show would fail to capture the same sensations as the game because the genius of the game's design was that it leaned into things which video games are uniquely good at doing. It provided, for example, a totally silent protagonist, which any player can control and feel connected to. It baked key story elements, like a series of songs that have unique powers, into the gameplay, having the player actually put those things in, put those inputs in themselves, creating a connection between the world, story, and player and it hid small but meaningful side stories, rewards, and locations in out-of-the-way areas, encouraging exploration and hugely impacting the game experience. All of these things feed into the thematic overtones of the game in a way that any other medium simply would fail to do. To reiterate the point, it's a game that only works in the way it does as a game. Nowadays, I find I seldom want to see my favorite games turn into movies or my favorite novels turn into comic books. I want to see more Ocarina of Times, more Buggy Nights, more Spirited Aways. I want to see original, powerful works of art that take such advantage of their medium they cannot meaningfully be told any other way. And in the context of movies, I'm not sure if there's as effective an example as the Masterclass that is Mad Max Fury Road. I didn't hear you mention the Duke Warrior once, John, and this is garbage. It's a garbage essay, and you're a garbage writer, so I have nothing to say to you. I, have, I disagree. Man, I I thought it was a bit with the like child protective kind of vibe, but like you, you've brought it. Like I'm just gonna. This is now not even in the context of the podcast. I'm telling you, the listener, Mike has brought this character up like a lot. Like He's before we were recording, to me. this was. <laughs> we have something special. Oh no! I think that's. I I, I really like that essay. You know, it's funny because it's. It's been coming up a lot if you are engaging in really any conversations about movie in its place or cinema's place in culture, because I think the, mm -hmm. the biggest conversation today is, is this movie, are movies just becoming miniseries, right, on streaming networks? And what is the yeah. medium for stories? And over and over and over again, the single arc or single season show or the even multi-season stretched out narrative for like a running show are winning over 
a two and a half hour or one and a half hour movie anymore. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, honestly, a lot of times it's the wrong choice. It, it's sometimes it's actually really cool to see what would have been probably too short as a movie get condensed. But more often than not, mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh, you just made this clunky and longer and broke it up and had kind of breaks that weren't necessary to the flow of the story. And you've got yeah. the wrong medium just because that's the the trend for which uh, creation, this kind of creation right is going. Now, yeah. yeah, that's just the popular yeah. medium and the cheaper medium. So it, it's really interesting, you know. Um, it's an interesting conversation with a lot of really kind of fascinating examples. If you can just let me babble for a second. I don't know if you had questions asked me, but... Um, no, no, you're good. Keep rolling. Kind of like as you were talking, I, I thought of three examples. Uh, you know, one that is a perfect example of only can seem to exist in the medium it was created on. And then one success story, one not so successful story. I think the one that immediately popped to mind of of being exactly what you're talking about is the Watchmen, where the Watchmen movie, part of it's Zack Snyder, but part of it is it just doesn't translate to a two hour movie, right? Because the Watchmen as a graphic novel has all these like, really intricate pieces of narrative between chapters and backstory and appendices almost. And, and then it's also capturing the visual art of comic, right? That also goes a lot into how it, how it succeeds. And it's been really interesting that when the Watchmen did succeed on HBO, it's because they made it a essentially a different plot from the story. Yeah. Um, And every other attempt to kind of visualize it has mostly been unsuccessful. But that, that's a prime example of what you saw an artist understand this story is best suited for this blend of, of novel or novella and then comic book. Yeah, so real quick on that, too. I actually even had Watchmen as one of my main examples yeah, initially yeah. And, then, and then had to cut it out. But, but I do think that's such a great example of um, in the com- using, in that case, the comic book medium in ways that uniquely suit the comic book medium. And if someone out there is, is like aching for just a really tangible thing, because I think it's possible even talking about this a little bit abstractly, I think um, in the context of Watchmen, the comics has this really interesting thing where this character Rorschach has their face um, mask sort of changes shape. And in the comic, it's this thing where you don't really understand what how this works in the nature of the reality of the thing. But the thematic overtones are so intense that it's okay. So, you know, you're seeing that from one frame to the next, it's it's changing dramatically how his the symmetry of his face mask works. And that's something which I think, like, frankly, you know, Snyder in the film just renders that faithfully, quote unquote, in terms yeah. of the character's face keeps changing. But at the same time, that totally misses the thematic strength of you not really being able to discern if this is a real part of the world, right? Yeah, of, yes. Of, of it existing as this interesting psycholo- like kind of on the edge of the psychology of the character and the events of the of the comic book. And there's like a hundred examples of that because I think Watchmen is actually one of the all-time best examples of using the things uniquely suited to the medium. Uh, but that's just one of my favorites because it's so easy to see where the movie, you just lose something there, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's because like, gosh, I don't know. So there I, I do love the examples that do succeed across multiple yeah. mediums, like transmedium stories. I think the most wildly successful is the first four ish seasons of Game of Thrones. And I think what's yeah. interesting about that is that what made the book successful 
was a play on fantasy that was about politicking and intrigue and like really kind of bringing in that part of our real world into a fantasy book. And that actually is just highly transferable to a TV medium, like an episodic storytelling. Absolutely. And on the other end of that spectrum, you're watching, and this breaks my heart and I hope it gets better, but you're watching the other end of the example with Wheel of Time right now, where that book series is really big in spirituality and like conversations along spiritualities and the, the meaning of spirituality across history and storytelling. And that's its unique contribution to fantasy kind of genre making. And that does not transfer pretty much at all to television. So what you get is yeah. kind of just a play it by the book fantasy story in which it just doesn't, it, its strength does not even really appear in an episodic TV format. So mm. yeah, none of that was really specific to what you said, but the general idea no. of what you're talking about, I think is spot on. And I also just agree with you that Mad Max is a perfect example of that in a movie. Like you make this into a miniseries, it's trash. It's too long. It's it loses the high octane voltage of the movie. You make it into a book, really weird book, right? Um, you make it into almost anything else, and it, it it is not as successful as it is in a ninety minute movie. Yeah, it's incredible. And uh, you know, for what it's worth, it actually was adapted. I, I looked up into a comic book, which may or may not be good. I don't know, but but yeah, I th- I think. I'm just so intrigued by that idea. I love those examples you provided because, again, people often, I think that without wishing to sound too pretentious, I think people who don't think about these things often are just are just prone to, to assuming anything can be adapted into anything and be successful. And again, I'm, I'm like, well, there may or may not be a truth to that, but I would say a lot of things would have to change so much to be successfully adapted that at a certain point you think, well, is this even the same thing? That, yeah, um, you know, because like I can envision a great Mad Max novel, but does that novel succeed in any way yeah. that the movie does? Not really, right? It's not going to throw me with its action and its sense. It's not going to tell me stories through the action the way that the movie can do. That movie is uniquely suited to do, and well, that's that, what I'm so fascinated by. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the the hard part of these adaptations that flop of things that we love is that more often than not. Uh, it one kind of reveals your own delusion for like how much you love yeah. this material, which is granted a good thing. You love it and you want to, you want to engage with it in new ways and you're just deluded into thinking that it can be engaged in different mediums to the extent that you imagine. But I think in a positive side of it, it also sometimes just like helps you remember why you love the original work. Like that's kind of sure. where I'm at yeah. with wheel of time. For those who don't know, I adore Wheel of Time, the book series. And what though the show has been disappointing, not terrible, but it's been disappointing. I thought it was going to work when it was come, leading up to it coming out. And one of the things that it's pushed me to do this like kind of tepid response is to go back and read the books. Because what it really did was highlighted the parts of it as a novel that I absolutely adore. So in a weird way, it's yeah. pushing me back to the medium that so kind of in, enraptured me or captured my imagination and made me fall in love with it. So there is a positive part of it, which it highlights. It further highlights, by contrast, the elements of these stories or these pieces of art that you just love. Show, don't tell. A simple phrase, 
in a phrase that honestly drips with irony for me. Because on one hand, show don't tell is a value that I actually give a lot of weight to in just about every arena of art in honestly my life, be it preaching, storytelling, and above all movies. What I tend to find is that I loathe pretty much any piece of art with heavy handed exposition. I hate feeling like I'm being talked down to by writers who overtly tell me what they want me to think and try to impose that upon my experience of a film or a book. I'm just someone who's always preferred works that present their stories or their ideas and then trust me as the viewer to wrestle with and come to my own understandings and conclusions from what they've presented me with. Stories that show me something to ponder, but don't tell me precisely how they want me to do so. And that's ironic, as I said, because simultaneously, Show Don't Tell is also a value that I've always struggled to live by. As the listeners of this podcast probably aren't surprised to hear, I talk a lot. And when something really excites me or intrigues me or gets stuck in my brain, I tend to talk even more than I usually do. I tend to fall into over-explaining, flooding people with information after just one innocent inquiry and honestly often imposing tsunamis of my own arrogant analysis on the poor audience or individual in front of me. Which isn't a terrible character defect, but it does make my adoration for storytellers that seem to do the opposite just kind of funny to think about. And as I sat with that, I started to think that maybe it's the personal struggle I have with that value, this show-don't-tell vision of engaging with stories that has always made Fury Road so magnetic for me. Because for a movie that's so wildly successful and innovative in every way, it's Miller's understanding of show-don't-tell storytelling that has always impressed me the most about this movie, especially when I rewatch it. At its core, Fury Road mirrors its title characters, Max and Furiosa, characters that are embodied, visceral, physical, complicated, dark, complex, and realized. Characters who the audience knows contain multitudes after leaving the theater, but who say so little in the movie about themselves or why they do what they do that it's actually kind of stunning to think about. Two figures whose entire characterization is defined by show, don't tell, communication. And these two characters are perfect avatars for the entirety of Fury Road. Under Miller's direction, show don't tell acts almost as a guiding value from everything about the movie, from its themes to its ambitions to its executions. Somehow drawing the audience into a fully realized world that we absorb with almost no exposition, seemingly by contact with the work of Lone. Just think about all the things you come away from Fury Road knowing without ever actually being told anything explicitly about it from the script. There's Fury Road's broad post-apocalyptic setting. Like we've already mentioned, there's the utter regression of human civilization, the environmental collapse of the planet, this dead, chaotic world defined by war and dictators. Every aspect shown through various images, desperate responses to limited water, a clearly declining form of language and titles and power structures, giant sandstorms, insane demigogs, rabid vehicle designs, 
Even the faces of the film's actors, like the dumbfounded look on Max's face when seeing trees that are green for the first time. An entire world and ecosystem is conveyed in Fury Road with natural conversation. A look, a twitch of an eye, a movement of the camera, a car's gnarly configuration, a simple background setting, not addressed or commented on at all. Or how about Fury Road's deeper, more unsettling realities? The more layered aspects of its world building. The various conniving factions, families, and hierarchies of power defining the lives of these average destitute people. Their terror shallow mythologies, and harsh measures of control over minds and resources. In Morton Joe, Bullet Farmers, Gastown, all just a name, and yet each embeds within it a purpose and a role in this world that we somehow know implicitly with nothing but the mention of the title or an image of the character. But perhaps the most impressive example of this value is actually found and how the movie engages with the psyches and motivations of its characters. Most writers and directors feel compelled to just tell their audience such things about why their characters do what they do, because communicating them without words is honestly profoundly challenging. Just think about it. How do you communicate the internal world or struggle of maybe yourself without narration, without saying what you're feeling or thinking or why you're doing what you do in a given moment? How do you communicate a stranger's thought patterns without heavy-handed conversations that lay out their mind and their will? I mean, I cannot begin to imagine how to convey such things, such internal experiences, without words, and loads of them at that. And yet, in Fury Road, such things are almost never told to us as audience members directly. But somehow, they're still effortlessly understood communicated without a single monologue or lengthy explanation. The mass delusion and desperation of human survivors, be it those clamoring for muddy water or the fanaticism expressed by the insanity of the war boys. The weight of decay, looming mortality, and the loss of history and memory that motivates the powerful, so clearly felt by the unhealth of those unlucky enough to transverse this cruel world. These things motivate the characters and are communicated entirely through offhanded remarks about tumors, the briefest references to a person's half-life, or the visual of the never-mentioned or addressed breathing apparatuses that are needed by a Morden Joe's family to survive. Each character's core motivations, even the motivations of the entire world, are understood. They're known without anyone telling us such things outright. We're able to absorb Max's distrust or the seething rage over a stolen home underneath Furiosa's quest. And I could go on and on. I mean, I think this value applies to every aspect of the movie. As my favorite movie podcast put it, The Rewatchables, they pointed out that Fury Road could be a silent movie if the director had wanted it to be. Without a single word in it, you'd still be able to fully understand who is who what's happening, why, in each major theme. And that is just astounding filmmaking. That's a director that gets that he can trust me with his story and leave me to be free in wrestling with how it might speak to my reality, what it might teach me. That show don't tell 
as a value at its finest. And y'all, in so many ways, I think that preaches to me. Because be it ideology, politics, spirituality, advice giving, literally anything that's important to me and that I want to share, I think this value is so hard to apply for a reason. Because ultimately, in matters of worldview and hopes, we all tend to slip towards its opposite, towards misguided urgency and manipulation through floods of words and fervent insistence, towards hierarchy and patronizing, seeing ourselves as teachers and others as our needy pupils. We all tend to lean towards monologues and over-exaggeration concerning ourselves, our views, our capacities, insights, and knowledge. These are things that we all do at times, even though we know that they are often less effective tools than just about anything else when it comes to education, convincing, or changing a person's mind. And ultimately, Fury Road reminds me that instead of doing such things, we are better off remembering that a life in a story, well told, fully embodied, well lived, and presented with integrity and focus is almost always more compelling than anything we might say with a million words. It reminds us that we can't control our audience or make them think what we want or even get out of a conversation what we hope them to get. It reminds us that effective communication always requires a measure of trust in our audience and a willingness to let them figure things out for themselves. More than anything, though, Fury Road reminds me that I'm drawn to movies like this because they work, and they point to a value that works. And thus, in the areas of my life and world where I most want to make a positive impact, I'm better off dropping my ego and my natural arrogance to shut up for just a moment and learning how to show, not tell, what actually matters to me most. Yeah, man, I thought that was really, really great. I, uh, you know, what's funny is the first thing I wrote down was that we've had so many instances of our essays accidentally overlapping. Is this the first time that we've accidentally uh, complimented each other? That yeah, like the hey. two really kind of go together in a really cool way. It only took us uh, twenty-eight episodes. Yeah, without us <laughs> repeating each other in different words. That's great. We got there. We did it. Uh, hopefully, by episode sixty, we can manage it at least one more time. But you know, it is. I, I think like a lot of what you're talking about with how the movie succeeds is also kind of what I was talking about in terms of what the movies does that only movies can do right mm. you know with the idea of showing not telling some of these things that not even not even a comic book or, or much less a novel or something would have succeeded in trying to convey those things so i just thought that was sure. really cool um i actually I, i'm not sure if you'll be interested in this because it's a tiny bit of a tangent but at some point i was trying to decide i, I was trying to think of another example of a movie that does this because i think you're right this is such a good movie at, at world building through, excuse me, through that showing not telling philosophy. Uh, the only one that I could think of that came close is a movie we haven't done yet and we're absolutely going to do at some point in this podcast, which is Children of Men. Mm, yeah. And yeah. Ooh, even, great, great example. Yes. It's a good example. It is. Having said that, it is not as outlandish of a world like the world is much more relatable to us. 
Uh, so in a way, I think it's easier for it to get away with the subtle storytelling, and that's more effective. But if you think about it just in terms of so much of what you discover about the situation in the world is just in how characters are are acting and responding, right? Yeah. It's yeah. just in little little aside lines that you just that suddenly set, set your imagination on fire because you're thinking, what does that mean? Like what is that yeah. referencing? Mm. Or like like a commercial for for a suicide kit. That tells you more than any amount of exposition would about the nature of the world, right? Um, in this movie. Uh, so I don't know that, uh, that was the main, you know, I, I guess in terms of just the actual points, I just totally agree with what you're saying. And then trying to think of an example, I was just like, yeah, children of men. But other than that, it's, it's surprisingly tough, I think, to do this. And yeah, it's just really hard to imagine, to think of other movies that even come close, you know? Yeah. I think, you know, it's funny because it's, there is a, a, a connecting point with these two movies, which is that they're both apocalyptic in some nature. And That's I do true, think yeah. there is something so jarring about apocalypticism in a movie that um, makes it that you could just show something that is like eerily relatable to us, but also shows how much has been lost. Like there's something easier about that, right? Um, yeah. To to uh, be effective in what we're talking about. You know, I was actually thinking of like Alien as you were talking too, where mm, it doesn't have to yeah. tell you as much. And there are a couple monologues in that movie, but for the most part, it lets you figure out that this creature is changing and terrifying and awful and unkillable, right? It kind of leaves it uh, to showing you that as characters get picked off, like the rules of the game in a way where it could have just been like at the start, this is what you're dealing with. This is why you, you know, um, in a way, actually, they don't, they don't have that, that monologue until the end of the movie, like almost near the end, yeah. which is kind of cool too. Yeah. I would say even beyond that too, if you think of Alien, like the set, like the first what hour of the movie before anything even technically happens, we're getting all of these details just about the setting of the world. Like yeah, you sort yeah. of figure out that these are just working class kind of guys. That this is, you know, the vibe of the, of the room and everything, and all of that, like we said, is not from from uh, exposition. They just kind of demonstrate it. They, it just kind of happens, and you yeah. slowly pick up on those details. I, I like that you had talked about, going back to the monologue a little bit, I like that you had talked about how trust is such an important part of this. Yeah. Because, again, you think about Alien, you think about Children of Men, you think about this movie. I think that's probably the characteristic that they also all share in common is that they – they, they go out on a limb of assuming, like, I, I need you, audience member, to put a couple things together in your head without me putting them together for you. Yeah. So I just mentioned offhand this theme in Alien where it's like these are not, like, you know, space adventuring heroes. This isn't Buzz Lightyear. This is just some guys working on an oil rig, essentially. But again, the movie doesn't explicitly tell me that it has to trust that I will come to that theme on my own. Sure. That I will, I will put those pieces together and realize, okay, this is an interesting way of demonstrating this rather than what is more typical for those kinds of movies, especially at the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a key, that's a key component as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it highlights to bring it back to um, Fury Road. It highlights why this movie is so unique in some ways and so successful because you know there are movies that trust the audience and mm -hmm. but their posture to the audience is if you are not going to do the deep work of understanding what this what's going on here 
then go watch a different movie. Like we were talking about before we started this recording, the master and the master's yeah. that way, right? It's like, if you're not going to wrestle with this, I'm not going to give you anything. I'm not going to tell you anything. You're going to have to figure out everything. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, um, Paul Thomas Anderson probably doesn't give a crap if people like aren't going to come <laughs> on that journey. What I love about this movie is how deeply enjoyable it is to basically, we talked, mentioned this in what worked, but basically to any level of engagement that you want to give it, it is going mm. to give you more and more and more depth, right? But at its core, if you want to engage in its themes, not at all, it's still going to be a understandable banging action car chase, right? Yeah. And that's just like, I don't know, there's something that's so beautiful about that in some ways that this yeah. director is just like, I want this to be universally accept accessible, but I also trust my audience with like the nuances and the deeper thoughts to figure it out for themselves. Like, I don't know, there's just yeah. something really neat about blending all of that into one experience that I think most directors just aren't even really interested in doing. Yeah. Just say it seems like we often, you know, I had mentioned earlier uh, going now all looping back all the way to my essay. We had talked a little bit about why I love action movies. Right. And, yeah. and, and we could even expand that to genre movies. So now that's action, science fiction and uh, like horror. Right. And I, I think that what you're describing is such a key thing about this, which is that, there's something, what am I trying to say? So to a certain extent, a, a movie that regards itself pretentiously is sort of easy to make, I, I think, to a degree. Mm. Or, or I should say easier to make to a certain degree. And that would be one extreme. And that's the things that, again, like we said, are, are, aren't in any way conceding to what the audience may or may not be interested or may or may not understand. And there's merit to that. I'm not saying that's bad. Yeah, and then we yeah. have on the other extreme movies that are, uh, you know, cheap blockbusters that don't really say anything, but just are there and, and meant to be enjoyed by a lot of people. And again, there's merit to that. I'm not saying that's bad, but I am fascinated. I think you are by this middle ground. And this is where genre movies, I think, live and die. Yeah, is that there's this middle space where it's like, well, it is a genre movie, meaning that on its core, it's going to appeal to a lot of people because it has the DNA of something that's usually very tangibly exciting. So for sci-fi, that's going to be like cosmic wonder and um, adventure to a certain degree. For action, obviously, it's going to be that adventure, that thrilling, that, you know, all these things. For horror, it's that primal kind of fear, that kind of response. So genre movies have that built in. But what's so great is since that's built into the premise, they can then tack on or, or build on top of that much more interesting ideas which again is how they get they they get almost i won't say a free pass but this ability to uniquely straddle both worlds where anyone can watch it and have a good time but if you if you notice or if you care to pay attention you'll you'll find these these transcendent ideas layered into them and that's just so that's so cool that's so difficult i think to accomplish um and that's why i love these kinds of movies Thank you again so much for listening to this episode. We do actually have a final question that Mike and I have each prepared for each other. Before that, though, we do want to let you know on the next episode, we're going to be doing, we're going to be throwing Mike a bone, to be honest. Uh, not to say I don't like it, 
But we're going to be doing Inside Out from 2015, yeah. the Pixar animated studios uh, masterpiece slash mm. maybe mm. their best movie, question mark. Yeah. I actually wouldn't say that. Mike would say that, maybe. Yeah. Toy Story 2, baby. Uh, perennially underrated. Tune into that. It'll be great. Mike, I'm just going to go. Final question. Witness me! Okay. Is that, is that just your answer? You haven't even yeah. heard you haven't even question yet. Okay, you have... I know a lot of mine end up being similar to this, but I'm okay with that. You have to take one vehicle from this movie and drive it in your daily life for one full year. <laughs> Which vehicle do you choose and why? As a daily driver, and, and just for practicality, you can use, like, you know, because you have a family, you can use another vehicle if you need to transport someone. But just for you getting around, there's some car from this, or motorcycle does, from this movie you have does to Does the, the Doof Warrior come with the guitar vehicle? I'm... <laughs> Wait a second. Are you saying does... Okay, does the Doof Warrior come with... Let, let me say... Let me say yes. Why not? Let's... Yeah! Is that going to be... <laughs> so now you're also just housing this person like because he's not gonna know where to go sure whatever gonna... well first of all he doesn't go anywhere as far as i can tell he lives on that vehicle he does um, seem very attached to it yeah so yeah, i'm pretty point. sure he's i'm not even sure if he eats i don't know there's a lot of questions about his like biology and how he lives sure um, sure yeah but uh follow-up question <laughs> does what do you do when the city of Tallahassee sues you for starting all these fires and burning down half of the city over the You know, I just like rock and roll, baby. I just keep driving. Just you just keep driving. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan Gosling, I, mean, I just, drive just for hit like the road. Three days straight somehow, <laughs> right. so apparently. I love okay. it, yeah. Uh, That's my answer. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Love it. What about, what about uh, you? What do you, got? What, are you, what are you driving? What are you driving? I honestly didn't prepare an answer this time. I think uh, I don't know. I think the 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 pole vaulters bikes are are or, or not even bikes, little buggies are great great pole. I live in New York. Oh yeah. man, I live in New York. So what would be? I guess the bike is the only answer because yeah, otherwise, probably. like everything else would be a bummer to try to. But maybe that's the direction I need to go. I just go with the war rig, and it's just like no, this just is my street people. Now. Yeah, I'm the <laughs> like captain now. All, okay. Yeah, you all are trapped in here with me. <laughs> <laughs> you all are trapped on this street with me <laughs> i think this is great so yeah it'll be one of those two either the bike if i'm feeling practical or if i'm being feeling assertive then i guess which is a weird word to use in this context but sure if i'm feeling assertive uh the war rig definitely yeah i feel like our answers have revealed that we are uh healthy and whole people psychiatrically that's what so. i think too uh, yeah <laughs> all right my question uh john you've been in a band mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And you're kind of a wimp and we've talked about how you wouldn't survive um, as a warrior in a post-apocalyptic landscape many times on this sure. podcast. Yeah. It's come many up many times. Yeah. Yeah. More you die. Than a, I think is like even a reasonable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it's almost swung too far the other way, but we'll roll with it. Um, <laughs> kind so of like you're, our Llewellyn Davis, but yeah, yeah. 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 So you're like uh thirsty and dying of water. Cool. The do for your position comes open uh, are you applying as a survival technique? If so, mm -hmm. one, do you think you would succeed in that role? And if not, why not? And then two, would you go with bass or guitar? Since I know you're a multi-talented individual. Um, I love this question. The answer is yes. The answer is I, I would go for that like on Tuesday. 
You know, I, I, I think this is... Forget the apocalypse. Yeah, I'm just on board. If this is just the... I, you know what? We didn't even put this in stray thoughts, but that entire rig was real. And he controlled the flamethrower with the whammy bar on the guitar. I which love is it. literally the best thing I've ever heard Hook in my entire life. So I'm, I'm just on board. And um, to answer your question, I, I would go for guitar. I could pull it off given preparation. If you drop me in today uh no they would kill me because i would be ineffective uh but i think if you gave me i think if you gave me like even a couple weeks i i i i'd I'd pull out some bangers i think do you think do you think he practices like does he have sheet music that he's memorized or do you think he's just up there just like improvising like jazz i think he's just improvising yeah i like this is all you know know, i want to live if we think about the doof warrior I think this is all from the heart. He's not in it for the money. <laughs> He's not in it for the prestige. I think like if everyone else died, he would sit there still playing guitar. Like God. this is just what he does. It's tragic poetry. I love it. I'm in. Tragic poet. It's 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 beautiful. Um. So you know, I think we've established, Mike. You can agree. Best character in the movie, Doof Warrior. Right. Won the movie. Is the best. Won the movie. Will always be the best. Um, John. I think we can also agree based on our last question that I'm going to get me a guitar rig and you're going to drive on top of it. If this is See you what, back in Tallahassee, is, buddy. If this is, you know what? If you buy that rig, I will move back to Tallahassee. How about that? <laughs> Deal. Deal. We did it. Oh boy. Okay. Anything else on Mad Max Fury Road, Mike? No. Um, <laughs> I'm shocked you didn't shout witness me. I was obviously I wanted setting you to, up just to shout. And it was just, I've done it too many times. So I'm gonna, I, been, I held the bits, back. The bits dead. Okay, well, that's fine. We've, we've exhausted our resources. Thank you all so much for listening. Witness I'm me! It's, it's genuinely incredible I didn't see that coming. I've, I'm like, <laughs> I'm disappointed in myself, to be honest with you. <sighs> My name is Jonathan Devine. I'm joined by Mike Overstreet. Uh, Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you on next episode.